Hi there, this is episode 102. This week we're talking again more about feeding children. Today I have an interview with Dina Rose, a sociologist and feeding expert, and we're talking about when it comes to feeding kids, why it's more than just about nutrition. You are listening to the Simple Families Podcast, a Q&A style show that brings you solutions for living well with family. Here's your host, Danae Barahona. Hi there, it's Danae. Thank you so much for tuning in. As you may know, this month on Simple Families, we're talking all about how to simplify food and family. If you're interested in joining in on the conversation, go to simplefamilies.com forward slash April. This month, my friend Zoe from Raising Simple and I are hosting this group as a way to bring discussion and community to this topic. So if you have questions, join us. We'd love to chat with you. Again, that's simplefamilies.com forward slash April. So moving on to today's episode, I first want to tell you a little bit about how I found out about Dina Rose. A few years ago, I was putting the finishing touches on my doctoral dissertation, and I was looking at how the way that parents approach feeding in the early years affects the way that kids eat as they get older. The research that I was doing and the research that I was reading was fascinating to me, and I thought to myself, every parent needs to know this information. So my thought was, I need to write a book about this. Until one day, I was wandering in a bookstore, and I happened to be perusing the parenting books, and I spotted this book called It's Not About the Broccoli. This is Dina's book. And just by very quickly glancing through it, I knew that I didn't, in fact, have to write the book because Dina already did it. Dina has captured and shared so much important research on this area, both in her book, It's Not About the Broccoli, and on her website and blog, which is similarly titled, It's Not About Nutrition. Dina shares the importance of what we do as parents when it comes to feeding our kids. So today we're talking more about that how to build a healthy relationship with food from the early years, how to get our kids to be more experimental, how to talk to our kids about food, and much more. Everything that I'm talking about today in the episode, you can find at simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 102. There you can also leave questions and comments as well. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Dina. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, hi, Danae. Really glad to be here. So, Dina, I was so excited when I saw your book, It's Not About the Broccoli, because there's so much in this book that really aligns with the way that I feed my kids and the research that I did as I was doing my dissertation. And I am excited to dive deeper into this topic. I know that this is something that I've talked about before on the podcast and on the blog, but I think getting your wisdom is going to be so valuable to all the audience and to me as well. Great. Well, I'm I'm always glad to talk about the book. <laughs> so can you start by telling us how did you get interested in this topic? Well, I'm a sociologist, so uh, I'm not a nutritionist. And that's an important point to bear in mind when we talk about my perspective, because as I'm sure you know, and your listeners know, sociologists spend a lot of time thinking about how parents transmit norms and values and behaviors and beliefs to their children. And So that's the perspective that I came to the whole feeding game with, was thinking about how am I going to teach my daughter about the right habits. But then when I was about five months pregnant, my mother, who had struggled with eating and weight and obesity her entire life, she died while I was pregnant and um, from complications from obesity. 
And so this just added this emotional wallop to the idea of feeding my daughter because I really wanted to make sure that she grew up to have a happy relationship with food. I wasn't so worried about the nutrition because I knew that if she had all the habits that made her happy around food, she would also eat nutritiously. So that was the perspective that I brought to the feeding dynamic with her. So for instance, I made a decision from you know the get-go that I was never going to be one of these parents who said you have to eat two more bites or I was a uh, you know, I didn't make my own baby food. So it, it's very tempting to say, oh, like, there's just two more, you know, scoops of, of uh, baby food in the jar. Let's eat it. So I had decided really early on I was not going to do that. But then I started, uh, you know, hanging out with other moms. And I noticed that they were thinking more about nutrition and not about habits. And one day we were at a play group and, and a mom, such a nice mom, opened up a box of um, little cookies and was offering them around for snack time. And our kids, my, she, my daughter wasn't even crawling yet. So, you know, and she was a late crawler. So I don't know, she was like five or six months or something. And I said, no, no, it's okay. I, I brought some fruit. And she said, oh, it's okay. These are Gerber. And, and what I really got from that was that she was thinking, well, these are, these are appropriate for babies. These are healthy for babies. You don't have to worry about this is like a sugar filled, junk filled kind of cookie. And I was thinking, well, right now I want to make sure my daughter thinks that fruit is the go-to. So that really clued me in. And then, and then just over time, you know, I just started seeing how parents were really focused on nutrition and inadvertently teaching their kids completely the opposite habits than, than they had. So that's, that's really how I got into this. So the part that I just took away the most from your story was um, that last story about the mom and how she was a really great mom and a really wonderful mom. And I think that that's the trend that I see. It's the parents with the best of intentions who want to do everything right for their kids that really run into a lot of these issues the most. There's two things that I know for sure. That's my little Oprah moment. <laughs> two things I know for sure. One is, is that all parents really have the best intentions and really want their kids to thrive and they want them to eat well. And the other thing I know is that all kids want to be good kids and would eat the way their parents want them to eat if the kids could, right? But there's something that's holding them back. And so then what happens is, you know, now that we're in the world of good intentions, we have to look at what the dynamic is. So what are the parents doing that's not working out right? And what are the kids doing that the kids think is working for them? You know, let's say they're worried they're going to gag or something. So they think the technique that they're using is going to work for them. But in the long run, it's not. And so I call this conscious parenting where Parents become very aware of the lesson they want to teach their kids and the lesson that their kids are learning. And if there's a gap, so if the learned lesson doesn't match up with the intended lesson, that's where the eating problems thrive. And so what parents have to do is say, hmm, this is the lesson I want my kids to learn. I want them to learn vegetables are delicious. But what I'm doing is forcing them to eat their vegetables in order to get their dessert. And so what they're learning is that vegetables 
are awful and you need to be bribed into eating them or dinner time is full of pressure or whatever the lesson is. So kids are learning that lesson. So then how do we switch the lesson so kids get the intended lesson? And that's how you create good eating habits and that's how you fix poor eating habits. Right. So we have this goal in mind as parents. And I think a lot of this comes from the media and what we see around us in that there's so much out there about what kids should eat. We all know very well that kids should eat less sugar and they should eat more vegetables. And we have all these ideas. There's a million cookbooks out there for kids of things that kids should eat and families should be feeding their kids. But the reality is that even if you have a whole list of things and you know specifically what your kids should be eating, getting them to eat those foods is a whole another story. (laughs) Yes, it is. And let me just say, add into the mix that some families can't afford to make meals and throw them out, right? So they're not even going to work very hard to try because money is a premium. Some parents um, just bump up against uh, an extreme concern their kids are going to be hungry or there are all sorts of things that that enter into this dynamic that's not just about the food. And so all that advice boils down to pressure for the parents. Oh yeah, I really ought to be serving more vegetables. Oh yeah, here's the magic recipe. Oh yeah, my neighbor down the block was able to do it. Why can't I? And the more pressure parents feel, the more desperate they can get. And then the worse the sort of dynamic is. And so the solution really is step back and take a breather and evaluate the, the way you and your kids are, are interacting around this. I, I know that's like not like coming out of a cookbook and it's not an easy soundbite, but that's really what has to happen because there's really three reasons that kids don't eat their vegetables. And it boils down to this. One, the vegetables don't taste good compared to the so-called child-friendly foods that we keep loading down with sugar, salt, and fat, right? Parents put an enormous amount of pressure on their kids to eat the vegetables. And while that does get a bite or two or three into the kids, the kids aren't really tasting the vegetables because they're so busy dealing with the pressure. And finally, eating unfamiliar foods is really scary. I mean, especially for some kids. I mean, think about the most foreign food you ever ate. For me, it was fried crickets. And it was really a terrifying moment. Yes, I am totally with you on that. I went to China and tried a lot of foods that I was really skeptical about trying lots of bugs and that sort of thing. And it was really scary. I think that there's something, what is it that drives that fear in us? Do you know, Dina? (laughs) Well, I'll just say for me, staring at this big basket (laughs) of fried crickets in Africa, um, I had nothing in my repertoire to compare it to. So think about like when you go into a restaurant, I always use this example about fish because this is where it has always happened to me the most, where you go into a restaurant, you see a fish on them or you see something on the menu and you don't know what it is. And you say to the waiter, what is it? And he or she says it's fish, but then you come back with other questions. Well, is it a flaky fish or a steak fish? Is it a fishy fish? Is it a white fish? I mean, you ask all sorts of different questions because the answers are going into like a data bank of food facts in your head. And you're assessing, oh, do I generally like fishy fish? Or do I like steaky fish? Or 
Is it fried? Or, or you're using information to predict what it'll be like. So there I am staring at these crickets. <laughs> I got nothing. I've never eaten a bug. I've never eaten, um, you know, there, I mean, I've, there are ants out there that I've never eaten. There are <laughs> all sorts of things. So I have nothing. And so I don't know, is it going to make me gag? Is it going to be so disgusting that I'm going to embarrass myself or regret it? Or, you know, like what's going to happen when I put that in my mouth? And I want to be a good guest to this country and a good tourist in this market. So I've got a lot of pressure. And I also have an image of myself as being, you know, an excellent tourist. <laughs> and um, so, you know what I did? I made my husband go first. And, and but, but the reason I made my husband go first is just because by the time he finished, then I could, I observed him. He didn't die. He didn't gag. He didn't throw up. He didn't pass out. And then I could say, well, what was it like? And then he could say to me, it was salty. It was crunchy. It, you know, it was whatever. So then I ate it. And you know what? I can't remember what it tasted like. And even in that moment, if you'd said, what was it like? I could say, I don't know, because the pressure, I was just dealing with the pressure and I have no idea. And did I go back for a second one? No. <laughs> So that database that you call in, uh, you could call that a schema or whatever it is, but at, for children, they don't, their database is much smaller because their experience with foods is a lot less. So do you think that that impacts their ability to try new foods? The fact that they just don't have a lot of experience or they don't have as much as ex experience with new things as adults do? It sure does. And it does in a couple of different ways. So first of all, like you said, they have a very small amount of information in their brains about different foods. So they don't have a lot to draw on. That's one thing. Second is that for them, some foods get confusing. So for instance, uh, let's say they've had cucumber, but then you serve them a zucchini. There is research that shows that they confuse those two. And, and so whatever their feeling is about the first one is transferred to the second one, not because they think the zucchini will be like the cucumber, but because they think the zucchini is cucumber. So that's the, the second thing. And the third thing is that as, as parents, um, we are told by all of the popular advice columns and media and, and books and everything is that what we should do is model eating the food and we should exclaim how good it is. Hmm, <laughs> this is a kiwi. It's delicious. So I want to ask you, if you were in a restaurant and you said to the waiter, what is this? And she said, hmm, it's delicious. You should try it. Would you or would you say, that's not what I asked you. I'm asking, what is it? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I always try to use the example that I aim to speak to my kids about food the way I do to my husband and that I wouldn't I wouldn't talk to my husband like that about Kiwi. So I think that that's the way that I try to model my language with kids, which actually brings up, I have this theory and I want your input on it. This is completely my own theory, not based on any research, but when it comes to child development and we're looking at young children and their ability to use language and their tendency to think very 
very concrete and, and black and white, I, th- I tend to wonder if that impacts the way that they think about and the way that they talk about food. So when young children before the age of, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, they tend to think in very black and white. So I love it or I hate it. And there's a lot of foods out there that are just kind of in the gray area. They're just kind of in between. And when kids don't really have an understanding of how to think about and how to talk about that gray area, it turns into I love it which is probably like that five percent of foods for some kids like you know chocolate yogurt peanut butter and jelly mac and cheese or I hate it which might be the other 95 percent of the foods because they don't know how to talk about things that that's just okay and the reality is most of the foods that we eat every day are in that gray area they're not the things we absolutely love but we also don't hate them they're just kind of in the middle and that sort of lack of ability to talk and think about things that are kind of a little bit of both i don't know what do you think about that i i completely agree with you um but I would say one more thing, or I would add one more thing to what you've just laid out, which is one of the reasons that children end up doing I love it or I hate it is, okay, of course, is developmental, and that's that's how they're predisposed to looking at the world. But one of the reasons is that parents teach children that language. So every single time we say to a kid, just taste it, and if you don't like it, you don't have to eat it. We are teaching them to use the language of dislike as the reason not to eat something. And there are other reasons that kids might not want to eat something, including what you just identified as food being in the gray area and and learning that you sometimes have to eat a clunker or sometimes you have to eat your less favorite food is actually a lesson children need to learn. But They also come to the table, um, maybe they're feeling um, contrary and they just want to have a little bit of a struggle, or maybe they were hoping against all hopes that they would be getting noodles and you're serving chicken, or maybe the food looks really weird or smells weird or something like that. So children know that the only legal way to get out of eating food is to say, I don't like it. And we teach them that. So if we teach them to have a more nuanced vocabulary, then they can communicate with us better and we can teach them these, these other lessons. You know what tags on to this, I just want to say, is when kids, I get parents who tell me this all the time, my child says it's too spicy, but, it, but he doesn't even know what spicy is. Yeah. You know, you are absolutely right about that. And when it comes to feeding my kids, my kids are two and four now. And when it comes to feeding, I'm not. I don't control how much my kids eat. I don't control whether or not they eat it. They make those decisions. But I do control the language around food. And that means when anyone is really visiting our house, if it's the grandparents or aunts and uncles, and I find that they're starting to ask my kids, do you like it or do you not like it? I really try to redirect that language because we don't at all ever talk about likes and dislikes when it comes to food with our kids. If they bring it up, that's fine. I don't dismiss it, but I don't initiate it. I never ask my kids, do you like it or do you not like it? And I never talk about foods in terms of things they don't like or dislike around them. So I don't say to my husband, oh, she doesn't like that or he doesn't like that because I think that we fall into this rabbit hole of defining foods that our kids like and dislike when really we 
it might have just been a food jag or just a day that they didn't feel like eating something. So it's really hard for us to know what they like and what they don't like. Well, and it's even hard for them to know what they like and, and dislike because the research does show that children under five don't have what's called stable taste preferences. So their taste preferences are all over the map. And, and, and then you layer in this idea about language and the whole thing is very confusing. I mean, even asking a child, I know this is slightly different, but even asking a child, are you hungry? If they are at the age, let's say between, I don't know, like two and, and, and maybe even as much as five, they're learning to match the language with the sensation in their body. So they know the words hungry and full, but they don't necessarily know how they match up with the feelings in their body. And so that's how come we can say to a child, are you hungry? And the child will say yes or no. And then their behavior doesn't match their language. And it's because they've just picked an answer. <laughs> um, sometimes they've picked an answer randomly. Sometimes they've picked an answer to manipulate us, not, not evilly manipulate us, but you know, there's chocolate cake. Oh, I'm hungry. Um, because that's another legal way of getting or not getting food. But the important point that I want to stress here is that it's difficult for kids to match up the words with the sensation. So the same thing happens with likes and dislikes, which is they're using the words like or dislike to get some of what they want, right? I want to eat this today or I don't want to eat this today. Um, they're using the word to match up what it might taste like on that given day. But since their taste preferences are changing, you know, it's, it's not permanent, but language becomes permanent. And so you're right. Once it gets put in the, I don't like it bucket, it's almost impossible to get them to try it again. And of course, getting multiple exposures is really the key. Right. And I think in our minds as parents, we have to keep it really open for foods. Like for example, my daughter has been obsessed with strawberries for a long time, loves strawberries, always asking for strawberries. And this week she started throwing all of her strawberries on the floor. So, <laughs> so in my mind, I'm like, this is a food jag. You know, she just doesn't feel like eating strawberries right now for whatever reason. Never do I tell myself, oh, she doesn't like strawberries anymore. So in my own mind, I'm not, ta I'm not thinking in likes and dislikes. I'm thinking she doesn't want strawberries today. I'm not thinking she doesn't like them anymore because as soon as I put them in that category in my brain that she doesn't like strawberries anymore, then I stop buying them and then I stop offering them. Exactly. Because as a parent, and we go back to what we started the conversation with, you know, every parent has the best intentions and we know what it feels like to be, you know, air quotes here, forced, um, or pressured internally, our own pressure or from the external, you know, perspective to eat a food that we don't like. So once we think, oh, you know, Janie doesn't like you know, whatever it is, strawberries, mushrooms, blueberries, we stop serving it because it feels cruel to keep serving food that they don't like. Right. And then we end up down this path of, you know, our kids now are only eating five foods. And when a parent tells me their kid's only eating five foods, I say, well, are you only offering them five foods? And then they say, yes, well, that's all they will eat. And it's, it sort of seems like that's how this, that's how they've gotten down this path is in their own minds. They've started to take cues and take words from their children and classify foods as likes and dislikes. And then they have weeded out foods on behalf of their children with the best of intentions. 
That's true, but they are also dealing with the frustration of cooking and dumping or, or you know, all the other things that come into that dynamic. Um, when parents tell me that their kids only eat five foods, which I think is really interesting that that's the number that parents use, um, very few parents will say to me, my kid eats eight foods. <laughs> it's usually five. Um, what I always say is that, um, first of all, almost every child eats way more than that, right? If you made a list of all the foods your kid eats for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack in a, a usually dependable way, you know, not the one-offs, but things that, that generally they'll eat. Most parents will end up with a list that's quite large. It's when they're thinking about the five foods, they're usually thinking about a particular meal or they've discounted all the snacks and all the crackers and, and all the sort of the junky food. But the junky food can be useful to us because the concept of variety, right? This is one of the habits that translates nutrition into behavior. We want our kids to eat a variety of foods. Parents misunderstand that to mean new foods, but variety really just means different foods. And so along the way of the lessons that kids need to learn in order to get to the genuine new foods, they have to learn the mindset of eating different foods. And so I teach parents a technique I call the rotation rule, which is using the foods that your kids already eat, make a big list, and then deliberately mix it up so that you don't serve the same food two days in a row, and with the exception of milk. And and tell your kids this, like it's not a secret. We don't, you, you, you know, we don't have, we're not gonna have waffles today because we had waffles yesterday. Would you like eggs or cereal? And and then we, we do that throughout the day. And even two-year-olds can learn the lesson of we had it yesterday, so we're not going to have it today. And the beauty of the rotation rule for parents is that it separates out taste preferences, likes and dislikes, from behavioral considerations. So when they're all mixed up together and, and our child refuses a food and we think, well, he doesn't like it we can't even deal with the child's decision not to eat it. But if we're serving the foods that we know that they generally eat, and then today they say, no, I'm not going to eat that, we know that we're in the behavioral domain. And so then we can work with the behavior as opposed to with the taste preferences. And it is a lot easier to think about this area about feeding our children in terms of behavior, because behavior is always changing and it's very dynamic. So to know that this is not a stable genetic tendency that your, ch your child just has already just had sort of a biological thing. Like my daughter didn't just wake up today with the actual distaste and disgust for strawberries. She just, for whatever reason, <laughs> has chosen not to eat them. So I think that, that yes. that's very empowering to think of it from that point of view, that it's behavioral. It's not, it's not biological. It's not something organic within their bodies that has shifted. Well, you know, when my daughter, I don't remember how old she was. She was like, I don't know, three, four or five, something like that. And um, she would do what you just said, like, you know, decided all of a sudden she didn't want to eat strawberries or something like that. My husband, out of the blue, one day as a joke, he said to her, are you on strike against, let's just say strawberries, you know, are you on strike against strawberries? And we all laughed and she didn't know what that word meant, but she said, yes, I'm on strike. <laughs> So, 
every time we we served strawberries after that for the family, we would say, hey, are you still on strike against strawberries? And she would laugh and she would say yes or she'd say no. And and then she started using those words. So I would serve apples and she'd say, well, I'm on strike about apples. And I'd say, okay, you're on strike. And, and then I would keep checking in with her. And then one day she was on strike against too many things. I don't know how many things it was, but I was like, we are going down the rabbit hole. So I turned to her and I said, you know what? You can only be on strike against, and I think I picked five, but I don't know what number I picked. You can only be on strike against five things. So if you want to be on strike against whatever it was she'd chosen at that moment, you have to bring something back in. (laughs) And she thought about it. She was like, okay, I'll eat oranges. (laughs) (laughs) So you're giving those choices. And I think that that's sometimes where it gets a little bit fuzzy for parents, because I know a lot of my audience tends towards an authoritative parenting style where for anyone out there that's not familiar with parenting styles, there's more or less authoritative, authoritarian, and permissive. So authoritarian is more of a, a dictator dictator type position where you're telling your kids what to do and you're really dictating what they eat, what they do, how they behave. And authoritative is more where you're giving more choices and you're working with them and you're guiding them. And I know a lot of my audience really strives to be authoritative and to give their kids options and choices. And I think that's where a lot of us run into trouble when it comes to feeding is because we really want to be open and we want to hear our children. We want to hear them out. We want to hear their opinions. But when they start to give, when we start to give too many options and they start to have too many opinions about what they're not going to eat, it gets to be really difficult. And we inadvertently become short order cooks as a result. It's a really um, careful balancing act between creating a structure that is not impermeable, but is pretty inflexible. You know, a structure that says, let's go back to the example of the rotation rule, where we want to create it so that the, that is really what the expectation is. It's like the car seat. You know, there's no fighting about it. You get in the car seat, you put the seatbelt on. Um, so we have the rotation rule. We That's the part that is just the structure so kids know where the boundary is. And then within that, we can give choices. Do you want A or B? Um, and occasionally, we can break the rule. So grandma comes and visits and there is just the most amazing lasagna that she makes. And we are going to eat that lasagna every single day until it's gone. (laughs) Okay. That's a good idea because, you know, we love that lasagna and we get it once a year when, whenever she makes it. Um, or occasionally you say, do you want, uh, bananas or apples? And your child says, I want grapes and she's not gaming the system she, she usually goes along with the choices and, and you think, oh, well, I have grapes. Okay, you can have grapes. But for the most part, we want to have the structure. You know, it's, it's like keeping the doors closed or locked in the house. You know, there's a lot of freedom within it, but your can't, kids can't get out on their own. And, and that really is the trick. But to go with that, we have to talk to our children about the food, about the food rules, about the food choices, about the properties of the food, about everything. And my experience shows that parents who are incredible at using an authoritative parenting style in other areas of parenting life fall down when it comes to food, partly because 
it gets wrapped up in taste preferences and partly because it gets wrapped up in fears that their kids will be hungry. And also because the advice out there, I'm sorry, is kind of lame. <laughs> it's just put the food down and they'll eat it or no kid starves himself or even Ellen Satter's division of responsibility, which, you know, I think is fabulous for, for eliminating pressure. You know, it's this idea that parents are responsible for deciding what gets served and children are just are responsible for deciding whether or how much they eat. Even that, which I think is really terrific in terms of eliminating pressure is still just to put it on the table and let your kids work it out for themselves mentality. And I just believe that we can give our kids more support and more direction and, and more direct lessons in how to make choices, how to explore new foods, how to know what the right amount for your body is. And we don't have to leave it up to them. I mean, if my, if my child couldn't read, I wouldn't just put letters on the table and hope for the best. Right. So finding a balance of playing a role in the feeding experience, but not overdoing it and not overstepping your boundaries. Yeah. And, you know, and letting your kids fail. Um, uh, there've been a couple of times when my daughter was, was young and we'd be at like a street party or a big buffet. And, and I would, give her the direction of just pay attention to your tummy. <laughs> like I'm a big believer that there are certain times that it doesn't matter what you're eating, you know, like, um, you don't have to go eat the healthy food before you get to the junk on this particular day because of the nature of the event or something. But it is important to learn not to overeat. So I'll say to her, you know, just, okay, you can have whatever you want today, but just really pay attention to your tummy. Um, and then I, I kind of secretly hope that she overeats once or twice so that she feels what it feels like. Because when we say to our kids, we do it all the time. Like we say, um, you're going to get hurt or you're going to hit your head or you're going to get, you know, you run over or you're going to get a stomach ache or whatever. And then we prevent that occurrence. The children don't really believe us. So, okay, we can't take that risk when it comes to street traffic. But we can take that risk when it comes to getting a stomach ache from overeating too much junk. And if I just tell her that, I mean, my daughter's a teenager now, so I just want to say I'm going back in my memory. But if I just told her you're going to get a stomach ache and she never got a stomach ache, why would she ever believe me that she's going to get a stomach ache? Right. So it's teaching kids to listen to their bodies, which I think we don't do enough. And I actually question whether many young children today have ever really felt hungry because so many parents are pre-programmed to offer snacks at hourly intervals. So I think that a lot of kids aren't coming to mealtimes hungry, which definitely impacts their ability to eat well during meals. I agree with you 100%. And I want to say that if in our minds as parents, we switch the word that we use from my child is hungry to my child is building an appetite, then it's a little bit easier not to over snack them. Oh, I love but, that. I've never heard that. But that's, that's a really powerful switch mindset change. Yeah. And the other thing I want to say is that, and I get slammed every time I write about this, but there is no definitive research that says kids need to snack. So 
there there is some research that shows there's been a lot of research that's been trying to connect frequency of meals with obesity. And even that research is not clear whether eating more snacks or fewer snacks is related to, um, you know, a like greater or less likelihood of, of, of being overweight or obese. But there is no definitive research that shows that little kids need to eat more frequently. And whenever I say that there are cultures where there's no snacking and those kids are thriving, or if we go back in our own history, I you know, I didn't, I grew up in the sixties and seventies and there was not a lot of snacking and our, those kids, my, my peers and I weren't falling down from low blood sugar or, or failure to thrive or anything like that. And, and then people say, well, little kids need to snack because they have small stomachs. And then I say they have small stomachs because they have small bodies. (laughs) And, and then the critic says to me, but in order to get all the right nutrients into their bodies, they would have to eat so much food. And then I say, well, then that really just goes back to the quality of the food that we're serving. And then the whole argument falls apart because if you are a believer in snacking, then you're a believer in snacking. So I'm not against snacking. The idea that I'm just trying to put out there is what you were saying, which is we need to pay attention to snacks. If you want to improve how your child eats, the quickest, easiest way is to either improve or eliminate snacks because that's where the dirty work is happening. Right. And I can actually say that I am completely against snacks for babies. And I see that in the first year of life, and that's really where my research was focused, was that we we know that milk and formula or breast milk or whatever it is should be the main source of nutrition in the first year. And then we're slowly implementing meals and we're doing that on a schedule. And when we're feeding snacks, food snacks in between meals, we know that kids are going to be taking in less breast milk or less formula because they're filling up on these snacks. And the vast majority of the baby snacks that we're seeing today, whether they're puffs or num nums or whatever they are, are empty calories, essentially. So I think the more that we're doing snacks for babies, not only are we setting up that dynamic for snacking earlier and earlier, and that sort of idea that we're going to reach for, it's kind of baby junk food really is what it is. Um, But we're also taking up valuable resource space in their stomachs where they could be filling with something actually nutritious like formula or breast milk. Well, yeah, everything that you eat displaces something else that you could eat, right? Yes. <laughs> um, but the um, but the other thing that I would like to add to that is that um, there are some other lessons that are happening. One is, of course, you're teaching kids the snack habit, right? So they start to learn to snack. We're then teaching them what is a snack. So those puffs, or when those puffs graduate to goldfish crackers, those goldfish crackers graduate to chips, right? So we're teaching a salty, crunchy habit. So that's the other thing. But to my mind, and sort of going back to what got me interested in this and my mother and her difficulty with food and eating, is that we are inadvertently teaching our kids that it is awful to be hungry. And we're not talking about food insecurity kind of hunger. We're talking about temporary hunger. And so 
there's a way in which picky eating is really a manifestation of plenty when we have a lot of food. And Karen LeBillon, who wrote the terrific book, French Kids Eat Everything, she wrote in that, I believe in that book, um, that uh, American parents are so desperate that their kids not be hungry, that they'll feed them anything, even if it's junk. So, and I was guilty of this when my daughter was, was little, which is, you know, I had that handbag stuffed with food <laughs> and maybe it had banana in it, but it probably, you know, had crackers or apple, you know, like it didn't have, it had a lot of different kinds of things. And I know a lot of parents who've got, you know, like, look at those kids who are constantly eating Cheerios or constantly eating goldfish crackers. But if they get hungry and you're out and you don't have anything, it might be Doritos. Yeah. And I think we get into that habit of feeding our kids. And sometimes we use snacks as behavioral control. So we know that if they're eating, they can't also be screaming, <laughs> which <laughs> I think is, is also a dangerous trap to get into because then kids become dependent on that. And I, and I hate to speculate, but in many ways, I think that when our kids are upset and we throw a snack at them, that's sort of laying the groundwork for emotional eating. I agree 100%. I want to say that, so I'm guilty of so many of these things, but when my daughter was little, she was the worst car, you know, passenger. She, from the, everyone else had a baby that if you put in the car, the baby would fall asleep. I felt like I was the only person on the planet who had a baby that you put her in the car and all she would do is scream. And it didn't matter if we were in the car for an hour or we were in the car for three hours, she would just scream. And so when she got old enough to sit upright and feed herself, what did I do? I fed her and in the car. And so one day we had breakfast at home and then we got in the car. And the second she hit the car seat, she said, I'm hungry. Where's my snack? And I thought, oh my goodness, I have inadvertently taught her to associate sitting in the car with snacking and I have to change that habit. So so yeah, I mean, it, 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 it can sneak up on us. We do it for functional reasons or worrisome reasons. Right. And for survival reasons in a lot of cases. And yeah, and I don't want to demonize anyone that's listening to this that does this because we all do this from time to time. But I think the awareness of it, and like you said, Dina, that noticing when you're falling into these traps and digging yourself out. Yes. Yes, it's never too late to change the trajectory, right? To change the habit. But it's better if you've got a little, little, little one that you start off on the right path. And the only thing you really need to do is think, just like you said, you talk to your kids the way you talk to your husband. You just have to talk, you know, think to yourself, well, what habits do I want this baby to have when she's three, when she's 13, when she's 23, when she's 33? And we don't want different habits at each of those phases, right? We want the same habits. So, so we have to start that way from the get-go. And we can do that by explicitly thinking about habits and explicitly thinking about the lessons. And so we go back to how, how do we teach our kids what we want them to learn. And we have to see the world through their eyes in order to figure out what the lesson ought to be. 
Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And this has been so wonderful, Dina. And I think we could talk about this for a very long time. And I know that you have a really great resource for parents who do actually want to dive deeper and learn more about this. Besides your book, which I highly recommend to everyone, I think every parent could benefit from reading. It's called It's Not About the Broccoli. And I'll put the link to that in the show notes. But can you tell us about the kit that you have as well? Yeah. So on my website, it's not about nutrition, which I just want to say is packed with hundreds of articles that I've written that translate the research into practical steps that you can take. I've developed a superfood explorer kit, which helps children become curious about new foods, because what we have to do is separate out the idea of exploring from the idea of eating. And this kit has cool tools like tweezers and magnifying glass and, um, you know, uh, uh, eyedropper so you can play with liquids, but more importantly, it has a book that has 60 different exercises that help you as parents teach your children to explore. And it gives you a vocabulary beyond, do you like it? And you can look at colors and textures and all sorts of things. So the whole kit is just this package that will transform the way kids approach unfamiliar foods. Great. I love that. And I think that'll be a great resource for anyone that is in need. And I think that there's so many people out there that could really use a helping hand with feeding their kids. And who can't use a little bit of help? Yes, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) We all need it sometime. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dina. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thanks a lot, Danae. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have questions or comments or want to get the links of the things that we talked about in today's episode, go to simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 102. And if you're interested in joining the conversation this month, you can go to simplefamilies.com forward slash April and we can chat more there. As always, thank you for tuning in and I would greatly appreciate it if you would take a moment to leave a review or rating in iTunes. Have a good one.